All right, so we've got kind of an interesting guest this week. Uh, his name is Roger Nygaard, and I'm sure you all will be uh, aptly aware of him because he was the director of the Halloween movie. So we are here to discuss his new movie, Halloween. <laughs> That's the other Roger Nygaard. Uh, uh, well, it seems I watched the wrong movie. I may have trouble telling you how good yours was with that in mind. <laughs> he directed and starred in The Nature of Existence. And Leighton, you probably don't know this because Leighton doesn't do any research uh, at all. So no. Roger Nygaard actually uh, did Trekkies. That's uh, probably what I'm most notorious for. Yeah, documentary I am about a Star big Trek fan fans. of your work. Uh, he didn't even know. <laughs> no, he's a big fan. <laughs> Suddenly, I am more interested in what you have just done. <laughs> <laughs> if I told you a few of my other past exploits, I might even get you even more interested. Uh, I may actually go watch them, but that's debatable, and uh, we'll yeah, we'll just allow that to slide. But <laughs> that, that Trekkies was a good show because every time I feel down and depressed about my own life, I can just pop that in and ultimately immediately feel better. <laughs> well, you know, I did a film after that called Six Days in Roswell about UFO fanatics. You might want to look into that too because that might, might help you. <laughs> you are like a loser magnet, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait, wait, wait. Are you the same one that did Monster Camp? No. Good, because that one sucked compared to Trekkies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to put you down. Show, though, there was a show, my very first t- television directing episode was a TV show called Monsters. Not the same thing, but had Monster in the title. You also directed uh, The Office, didn't you? Did an episode of The Office, yeah. uh, worked on the Bernie Mac show, a uh, TV show called uh, Zeke and Luther on the Disney Channel that's running right now. And uh, right now I'm editing a TV show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh yeah, with the uh, Seinfeld guy. Wasn't yes. he the one that peed on Jesus? I think so. Yeah, Larry yeah. David. That's yeah, right. That was last season, the Seinfeld reunion season. <laughs> uh, I remember Charlie talking about that. It's <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Well, tell us about the nature of existence. What prompted that's my you? Most recent documentary. Yeah. I work in television and I do movies, but and documentaries kind of became a hobby that have overwhelmed my life. They can become addictive, and and this film especially after uh, well at about the age of seven. I'll back up that far, if I may. And that was when I first realized I was going to die, which is kind of a shock to an entity that thinks, you know, why wouldn't I be around forever? I've always been here. Why wouldn't I continue to be here? What uh, What made you realize that? I was a voracious reader, and, you know, I lived out in the country in the, kind of the middle of nowhere, and so all there is to do is read or blow things up. So <laughs> that day I was reading, and... Other days we've been blowing things up, you know. You know, as a kid, you you get into stuff you shouldn't, and you take apart shotgun shells and make little homemade bombs. And luckily, I've turned that uh, pyromaniac side into a positive career direction and uh, special effects <laughs> in movies. But that day I was reading, and I found the Family Medical Encyclopedia, and I was just flipping through it, and I was reading about uh, various diseases, and tuberculosis was what I happened to flip to, and I was reading that the, the uh, symptoms were sleepy. You know, tired all the time, a lot of coughing. Leighton, you're probably feeling these exact uh, symptoms yourself. Yes, I yes, had... I smoked a cigar last night, so there <laughs> will be coughing. So. <laughs> so I thought, you know, as a seven-year-old hypochondriac, I thought, this is it. I'm dying. I have these symptoms. I'm sleep- I'm always sleepy. Well, that, uh, you've, lived... Uh, you've lived a pretty long time with tuberculosis then. I, well, Congratulations. it was a false alarm, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I survived. And but it was the, that that realization that I was no I was not a, a permanent entity that opened that door you know and and which is where I think it always starts and either you maybe you go in a religious direction to look for answers 
or solutions to the anxiety created by the, the temporal nature of, of your existence, or you keep searching in an existential way. And for me, it was more of an obsession with existentialism. Uh, you know, that's that was the seed. And then at the age of 13, my father died, and it made it concrete. And so I began asking questions. You know, people tell you he's in a better place. He went to heaven, etc. And so I, you know, I I couldn't just say, oh, that's great. I can't couldn't help but say things like, well, if that's the case, and you know, when my father died, he he it took a long time. He slowly wasted away from multiple sclerosis. So the 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 person he was when he died was very different from the person he was two or three or five years prior. And so who I asked people, including our the, the minister at our church, uh, I was a raised Episcopalian. You know what version of him goes to heaven? Is it that emaciated entity that couldn't speak or feed himself, or is he regenerated to some earlier version? And that, of course, opens the door to many more questions. Like, if a baby dies, is it a baby for eternity, or does it get an immediate college education? And who chooses his major? <laughs> you know, and of course, nobody has any real answers. You know, if a retarded person dies, is he retarded for eternity, or is he suddenly given a new personality? And you know, you just have to have faith, and, and uh, faith to me is kind of synonymous with n not asking questions. And I, I ask questions, and so to make a long story short, that uh, uh, existential obsession finally intersected with my filmmaking career, and I decided to make a film about that passion of mine. You say that no one has the answers, but the Mormons do. Yes. Uh, right well, in the Doctrine and Covenants, it says that if you die under eight, you go straight to heaven. People say they have the answers, but then, <laughs> can they back it up? And any, you know, I need some evidence other other than I tell you so, because you know I don't doubt God. I doubt people, and that's what Steve Fromstein says in my movie. You know, it's people have agendas other than truth sometimes. So if God appeared, of course you would have to you know listen and take him for his word. But then again, even that's a problem. Because let's say God appeared before you and said, hello, I'm God, let me prove it, and he turns water into wine, or he's floating in midair, and he says, I created the universe. How would you fact check that claim? What well, if he's delusional? put your fingers in him. That's what, what? Doubting Thomas did. <laughs> For example, I mean, Come what on. if he's delusional? What if he only thinks he created the universe, but he didn't? So, he so could you're be saying Chris Angel at some time is going to come to us and say that he's God? If he could, you know, and he would back it up with he could walk on water, that's all that, that, that these stories have, and nobody even has any record of it. So, there's... Yeah, I mean, the guy could be levitating in front of you, but just be sort of kind of powerful, but not the omnipotent creator of the yeah, universe. Yeah, does that mean that he created all right. of matter in, right. you know, the entire universe and multiverse because he can make you think he's floating? Who was the biggest dick that you interviewed? I've got – I know, for me, watching the movie – I have my, and I'm sure Leighton does too. Yeah, yeah we've so, all got our favorites. Who, who was the <laughs> most gigantic dick that you interviewed during that whole? Thing? Well, you know, the obvious answer would probably be Brother Jed because he's a confrontational <laughs> evangelist. He, his whole point is to get in people's faces and yell at them. But you know what? I I spent a couple of weeks with the guy and met his family and and, and got to know him and. I like the guy. He, I call him a friend now, believe it or not, even though wow. I disagree with you know most of his contentions. But he's really good at entertaining and getting a crowd and getting people riled up, which I kind of respect because as a filmmaker, that's kind of my goal too. 
You know, it was very interesting. You showed quite the contrast between him standing in the middle of a, of a college uh, courtyard screaming at people, and then all of a sudden you show his wife and him and his daughter sitting there playing the violin. I mean, it was an amazing contrast. Yeah, you know, he's just a, a person. And, you know, part of, of the journey of making this film is was kind of surprising to me. And it, I think it surprised some atheists who've seen the film. I've gotten emails like um, Godless Girl dot com she wrote a review of the film and said that it gave her a new understanding of religious people i have a much better understanding having spoken to many religious people of why they believe what they believe and once i achieved a better understanding i i had much less anger toward them it's almost like how can you blame someone for being retarded you know <laughs> it's not their fault <clears throat> that you know a combination of maybe genetics and environment and whatever, they, uh, too much mercury in their food. Um, intellectual curiosity is not, everyone is not blessed with intellectual curiosity. The biggest dick I think, and, and you're wrong, the answer is actually Orson Scott Card. He was the yeah. biggest dick. <laughs> uh, that, well, every time he got on the screen, I gripped my <laughs> He is very what? certain of himself, you know, and that's part of what makes him such a great writer for me. I love reading his, you know, his books. A huge fan of his his work. I did not know he was a Mormon when we contacted him for an interview. That was a, a surprise and and a pleasant surprise because it was great to have that perspective represented in the movie as well as a science fiction author. And yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. To me. It's like how does somebody who's so smart? <laughs> I, I can you know, see where this line of thought is going. <laughs> how can you be so smart yet so lacking in? in asking questions uh, you know about things claims that are unsubstantiated Mormons are great at compartmentalizing yes um, absolutely Cognitive fantastic dissonance yeah I guess it's part of it's part of the human psyche you know we're yeah. all a little bit different in that regard some of us have more and some have less I've met very few Mormons who are bothered in the least by their cognitive dissonance they uh, cool. they kind of set it aside and say you know uh, those are mysteries, and I know that Jesus is true, and I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet, and I know that whoever the current prophet is is a prophet, and I'll just figure that stuff out later. Yeah, and how, but how do you know? How do they know? How do you know something if you weren't there yourself? You you have to take the word of someone else. And that means you have to trust and believe that someone else is passing on the truth as far as they know it without changing it. But well, there's also, evidence much of, of that every... has to do with, uh, with Mormon culture. Because uh, you are, from the time you're able to speak the words, you've got a microphone shoved in front of your face, and you got your mom whispering in your ear, I know the church is true, and you're sitting there repeating it. So it's also a lot to do with culture. Right. Well, in, inculcation, indoctrination, culturally, you know, wherever you're born, you're, that's going to feel right and normal because it was what you're bathed in from a young child. So it's always going to have a feeling of correctness, probably. Yeah, which is actually why uh, your buddy in the film, who basically told you, well, why go or why not go away from what you are normally used to, and had you traveling around, that was uh, astute advice. Yeah, well, you know, Mark Twain said the best way to fight bigotry is through travel. You get to know people, and you find out, you know what, they're okay, they're all right. They just just because people are different doesn't mean that they you have to be afraid of them, and that's I think the natural human tendency. It's tribalism, it's to be afraid of the other, and the religion, what religion does is it separates people into groups, different groups. And so once you separate people, then you set up a, a, a reason for conflict. They're different. They're separate. 
they don't believe what we believe. Whereas if everyone is unified, as if they're part of your group, you have a much different perception of them, much less fearful. And late night, you had the similar experience, right? You've traveled all around the world. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's true? Oh, very much so. I, I mean, it was uh, it was very I had, interesting. I had the opposite. Uh, I mean, if, there, if there was one thing I learned during this movie at the end of it was that there are losers uh, all across the world. <laughs> it doesn't matter what culture you're in. <laughs> well, it, it's an eye-opening experience because, I mean, I was raised uh, just almost in a boot camp of religion, and suddenly I started expanding my sphere by jumping to other countries and seeing other cultures. And it really starts you questioning what you were raised and indoctrinated in. And that was one of the major first steps towards me questioning everything. Yeah, you have to, if you are at all aware, self-aware, you have to question. You have to question people, yourself. You, you know, Descartes said you should question every perception you have. We can't trust anything. So if that's the case, how can you take anything? How can you say anything is true? You know, with cert absolute certainty, and the right. whole point of science is to say from the very beginning there is no such thing as truth as far as we what we can achieve. You can only get closer to truth as you get more information. Uh, there's love... only one truth I've ever found, and it's that I'm a lesbian trapped in a man's body. God, I love you know. The... <laughs> you know what? Did you know that that uh, there are orthodox orthodox Jewish lesbians that are. Yeah, I saw that. You actually had one on your show. I was very <laughs> impressed by that. <laughs> because, you know, maybe you know this, the Old Testament, the Torah, it says a man may not sleep with another man, but it says nothing about women. So they have an exemption. Right. right. Yeah, we, yeah, we talked about that loophole a couple episodes back. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, that shows if there is a God, he likes to see two chicks together. Yeah, he's a fan of lesbian porn. Clearly. He's definitely a guy. That's all I can say to this. <laughs> clearly. Um, now, you, we talked about Jed Smock, Brother Jed, uh, one of my favorite. It's funny because, on the one hand, I wanted to, every time you hit on, like, Richard Dawkins or Michael Shermer, I wanted you to stay on there for about 15 or 20 minutes to, to talk to those guys because they seemed to me to be the most interesting. But, that's you know, that's my bias. But almost as interesting was the ultimate Christian wrestling dudes. <laughs> you probably could have done an entire documentary on these guys alone. I feel like, yeah, there are many people in the film that I could have done a whole film on. John Henry Tony, for instance, the the folk artist who lives in a trailer, or the Christian wrestlers, or Richard Dawkins. I mean, just spending time, it was like going to the visit the Pope of Atheists for me to go see Richard <laughs> Dawkins. It was a pilgrimage. and But I know the feeling, too. That I would have loved to have stayed on these people a lot more. So, I mean, in making the film, The Nature of Existence, I had to limit it to 90 minutes because people can only take about 90 minutes worth of answers before they implode. So <laughs> what I did was I took the footage I had left over that I thought was really fascinating that just didn't fit into the nine, short 90-minute 90 uh, film, and I've created a seven-disc companion set where I could let let these people breathe and talk about these things, and I made it two topics per film. So, you know, we're in the film, I spend three minutes letting people talk about what is morality, what is the source of morality. I sp get to spend an hour on that topic. So, you know, disc one is existence and purpose, broken up into those two things. Then religion and spirituality, God and the devil, truth and faith, sin and free will, morality and sexuality, and prayer and afterlife. I expanded on all those topics in, in the companion discs. I read somewhere online that you uh, actually had amassed something like 450 hours of footage for this documentary. 
Yeah, ridiculous. I mean, just to give you an idea of how much that is, it would take you 11 40-hour work weeks just to watch it through the first time, much less you know, digitize it and cut it down into a movie. How long did it take you to edit that thing? <laughs> well, it's one reason. it took me four years to, to make the movie from my first interview to the final cut. Now, at, at any time, did any of those guys realize that you were poking fun at them? Uh, like, take, for example, the guy who had the tractor who said, uh, what was it, all that needed was just one part? <clears throat> just the motor to be rebuilt. Just the motor to be rebuilt. You know, it's kind of, there's two ways to look at that. One is that when you're immersed in something or you're, like, it's, it's, Trekkies is a perfect example. When you're at a Star Trek convention, whatever is there is normal because everyone is doing it. And so it, nothing stands out as bizarre as much as it does when you maybe take a step back and look at the footage. And with people like John Henry Tony or, or the Ultimate Christian Wrestlers, my goal isn't really to, it's not to mock anybody. It's to just present them as accurately as I can the way they are. And I think human beings are funny. They're interesting. They're you know, and and I seek out the more entertaining people, you know, the better, uh, more entertaining sure. possible. Sure. And, but my litmus test is in in creating the film. I like to make a film that the, even the people in it will laugh equally as much as those who are watching the film. And so I think the Christian wrestlers, I know they've seen it. They they like their portrayal in the film. That's fascinating. <laughs> I, I thought it was a great portrayal because. <clears throat> much like professional uh, wrestling. It's a great commentary on Christianity. It's exactly the same as professional wrestling. It's phony and scripted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good versus evil in the ring. It, it yeah. is, yeah. It, that's um, exactly what it is. I, I'm just waiting for the WWF or, or WWC, all those uh, wrestling federations out there, to suddenly start flogging Jesus right in the middle of it. It was, they, they got, <laughs> at the end, the lights go out, and the good guy's about to, you know, like on almost every... A wrestling match, you get to this crisis moment where the good guy's about to get smashed in the face with a chair. Lights go out, and the good guy's replaced by Jesus. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, I, you know, a friend of mine had sent me a, a link saying, hey, you should check out these Christian wrestlers, ha, ha, ha. You know, like it was a big <laughs> joke. And I looked at their website, and I thought, yeah, these guys are fantastic. I'd love to go and, and interview them. And luckily they said yes. That's great. Unlike real wrestling, the bad guy repented at the end. I was yes. disappointed. That, I was very disappointed in that too, because now they're going to have to find somebody else to hate next week because that guy's. <laughs> they're going to go through their bad guys. This is a ministry. They do this like on a weekly basis. So what the? What was the? Yeah. Well, they they uh, what they'll generally do is set up their their tent, or you know, they'll go to churches that have these big open centers, and they set up their ring. And on Saturday night, they have a wrestling show, and they put up signs, and admission is free. So if you're a local, what else you got to do? You go see a free show, and you get to see a wrestling show. <laughs> At the end of the show, of course, you know they have this passion play, and it's always different. They write a new one every week based on the stories <laughs> in the Bible, and they work it in, you know, to, somehow into the wrestling story. <laughs> I can't wait to see Samson kick everybody's ass with the job. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a good idea. Hundred thousand Philistines. Happening. They uh, have, give a short sermon and invite people to come up and be saved. And then the next day at church, <laughs> a lot of these people come to church. So it works as a recruitment tool for church on Sunday. Wow. Um, <laughs> as if. <laughs> as if. <laughs> where was this? Was this in Texas, Alabama? Uh, 
Georgia in Georgia. G- w- uh, Winterville, Georgia, which is just outside of Athens. Why <laughs> am I not surprised? Yeah. As yeah. if Southern Christianity needed uh, uh, more reason One to be nail in the coffin. Redneck. <laughs> <laughs> I've been criticized, you know, at screenings by some you know religious people who would say things like, you know, how can you show such weird you know, religious people? Why don't you show more normal religious people? And I'm, like, make for I, a I, well, I don't even. Who am I to judge what is the correct way to express your love for your religion? I got you know? news for you. In Georgia, that is normal religious people. <laughs> right. It's like the eye of the beholder. Who are, who am I to judge, and who are you to judge? All I know is what's interesting on screen. You also had an evangelist who I can't even remember what that evangelist said. All I saw was this big anti-homo button. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that same one. I couldn't hear what he said either. I was just concentrating on that, going, "What?" The <laughs> <laughs> he's talking about love, of course, you know. And, right. And, well, oh, that's no right. That's yeah, right. I found it as such a contradiction because he had that there, and then he's talking about love, and I'm sitting there going, "Uh." <laughs> You know, his contention is that, and maybe you guys have talked about this, I don't know, that um, it's okay to be gay. What's wrong is actually having gay sex. It's the act. Yeah. That's the Mormon position, too. Yeah, you they can be... acknowledge there are gay people, but you just right. can't act on it. So, which raises the question, why would God create people who can't be who they are, and not everybody has that same disadvantage? They'll tell you that everyone has their own temptations in life, and uh, this is just their particular temptation. And that's spoken by someone, and I've heard that over and over again. Clearly this person has never really interacted with uh, any gay people in their lifetime. Yeah, it's uh, always a cop-out when they could sit there and say that that's, how God, or that's why God created us different, is so we could all have our own personal temptations to get over. Right, it's and- not part of your identity uh, in as much as it's just like a... Temptation to walk by and eat a cheeseburger, right? Uh, well, you know, you know if if, uh, if you know if God created if man well if man is created in the image of God that would make God gay at least you know partly, and and but on con- con- contrary point you know if God did not like gay people why would he keep making them? Wouldn't he well, go like you know Ooh, that, that, I'm not going to do that see, again? My parents because... actually had the answer to that. They uh, they told me that. Uh, much like we just discussed, that it was for them to get over, and that since it was such a hard trial for people to get over, these were some of the most righteous people. Unless, of course, they fell, then they were completely unrighteous. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, it really well, doesn't. You know, if you, you apply that logic to someone who's born retarded, you can't get over <laughs> being retarded. Oh, trust me, they, uh, they've made the same statements about those who have those difficulties, too. They are the most righteous and didn't need to be tested. Applying that same logic, it's okay to be retarded, you just can't act retarded. <laughs> <laughs> you know... I, you know it's that whole, you know, there's a, a reckoning of accounts later, that mentality, which generally comes from people who are not happy with the way that things are going for them in this life. So that's right. their only hope is that there's some payback later for all of their, their uh, problems that are happening in this life. I think if, if we've learned anything from the Old Testament, it's that God is a massively closeted homosexual. He's wound <laughs> up really tight. Oh, well, Just like uh, all yeah. those, yeah. Don't all not those... to mention all of the other, the incest and the revenge killing okay. and, and and the murder. I mean, if you add up the number of people God kills in the Bible, it's somewhere like a million and a half or a million two. And if you add up the number of people that the devil killed, it's about ten or twelve. So, I mean, <laughs> who's more evil? In, if, if 
you know, in that definition. Uh, yeah, I think God's protesting too much about the homosexuals in the Old Testament. I think he's got, I think he's, he's in the got closet. issues, closet yeah, issues. He's got now, issues, definitely. I think I was most fascinated. Uh, you were visiting a culture. I'm sorry, it's early in the morning. I've only been up for a little bit, but uh, they uh, they basically chose this spiritual person because they were gay and. Uh, I'm trying to remember the oh, the Native Americans. The Native Americans. Yeah, that's right. The Native Americans. They call it two spirited. That if if you're gay, it means you're born with the male and the female spirit in one body. And then so they see that person as special, and they make them their spiritual leader. Yeah, I found that very fascinating. Well, you know, if you're going to be kind of rational and accept the world for what it is, instead of trying to mold it into some other thing that you wish it was, you'd have to acknowledge and work gay people into your culture in some way. That's just uh, that's just key, rationality, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Which no. You, what you do is you round them up and kill them. Yeah, oh, it, that's, but that's, they keep coming back again. <laughs> that's just know, not right. You put them on an island. That way, they breed themselves. Okay, that, that's nice. <laughs> completely different. Be nice. Except that uh, the, the the fact that gay people have been in our society throughout all of our existence would imply that. Despite the fact that they have a reproductive disadvantage, they continue to be reproduced. That means that everybody has within them the potential to have gay offspring in some genetic way. And so what they're finding, you know, the scientists who are studying this, is that there's a genetic component. But there's also, and probably a larger component, is the hormonal uh, environment of the womb that guides a fetus as it grows and gives it cues into how it should develop. For instance, they find that the uh, families that have a lot of sons, the youngest sons tend to be gay versus the older sons. And so there's probably something, some reason for that evolutionarily, that once you've got many sons, you maybe want to have some who will not marry and have children, but will still bring food back to the tribe and help raise those uh, other people's children. Just like gay penguins. Yeah, certainly in the animal kingdom, child rearing is is uh, key. I think to the uh, the homosexual Survive. population. Yeah, they, you know, a lot of the heterosexuals, or a certain percentage of them anyway, um, just are terrible parents. <laughs> <laughs> and the homosexuals, there was a study in Hawaii, I think, with birds, and the homosexual birds uh, were the best parents there. And the gay penguins, certainly, they're trying to steal that egg over and over and over again. Finally, they were given one of their own, and you know, heaven forbid, you try to get near that thing, they'll kill you. <laughs> we well, finally have our there's own a kid. nurturing component, you know, that nurturing aspect. And so there's there's got to be a reason evolutionarily for all the traits that human beings or any species show. Either it's adaptive or at least it was not maladaptive throughout uh, the evolution of that species. Or uh, it was introduced by the fall of man and when Eve ate the apple and dragged Adam along with her. Well, see, I yeah, think this, this is the, the major reason talk. why God drowned the earth is because even the animals are gay. He's just a bad, bad creator. It was the gay animals. That, it was, the that gay was a final straw. Put him over. <laughs> that he created, remember. Yeah. Right. Well, that just proves that God can't create properly. <laughs> He's a closeted uh, homosexual who's got Alzheimer's. He just doesn't remember and gets pissed off. Here, well, th- this is my favorite analogy that Steve Romstein, who's the comedian in my film, he put it this way um, when he was debating Brother Jed in a rematch that we did that's on my website. Uh, at the nature of com, if you want to see it, where he asks Brother Jed, did, did God create heaven and hell? Brother Jed says yes. He says, well, 
And then, did God send Jesus to save us all from hell? And he said, yes. Isn't that kind of like a family business? Is there like <laughs> the mafia? You create the problem and then tell people you'll save them from the problem? It would uh, be no problem if you didn't create the problem to begin with. You know, I've never heard it uh, equated to strong-arming small mom-and-pop stores, but uh, that actually makes perfect sense. <laughs> There's this great picture on the Internet where this doctor is sitting in front of a kid and he's saying, look, you have a disease, it's fatal, you were born with it, uh, it's not your fault, uh, the only cure is that uh, you need to worship me. And underneath it it says, yeah, it doesn't make sense with Christianity either. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. What is he doing? He creates the disease, and Hitchens says this all the time too, you know, you, you uh, create the disease itself and then you offer a cure. And of course you only offer this to a certain percentage of the population of the earth, uh, you know, the rest of it doesn't even hear about Christianity at all. Right, and only certain diseases, and those are the ones that can spontaneously go into remission. It's never the disease like a severed spinal cord or an amputation. So what does God have against those people? They're praying, right? Right. <laughs> right he doesn't like them because they ruined the temple that God gave them, so he's got a grudge. And only the Only the diseases that he... Pre-plants genetically, he's in favor of curing at he's some in? point. Yeah, right. Still... Only, only the diseases that may naturally cure themselves, he he's actively <laughs> involved in. But he's very angry if you slip on a banana peel and fall and break your back. It's because you didn't take such good care right. of its temple. Or you know, you get uh, your arm cut off in war. You know, fighting for God. Uh, doesn't like that either. It's hard, hard to understand what he likes and doesn't like. <laughs> well, well, just ask it. Brother Jed. He's got all the answers. Yeah, he's got all the answers. But I'm surprised you give he, it to him. He does. He, he's quick. He, I'm surprised he came back for a rematch. The debate that was shown on the film, uh, he, he got slaughtered by that comedian. He should really be embarrassed by that. He's been doing this for 30 years, and a comedian comes and... Within uh, one minute, just had him on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all Steve did was, too, he didn't debate him. He just asked him questions. It was just kind of the Socratic method. You yeah. know, Socrates just asked questions and would lead his students toward a conclusion on their own. And Steve Fromstein led Jed around to acknowledging evolution. And I think it surprised Jed. But then Jed just falls back on, well, look, I'm talking about the God of the Bible. And so he just goes back on Scripture or faith. Right. Yeah, that was very clever. You got him to say things that that uh, is completely compatible with evolutionary theory, and then he just turned it back on. You know, so what you're saying is... <laughs> and then it was like this moment where something fizzled in his brain and he reset the system and got back onto Christianity. Yeah. If anybody listening, if you want to see that clip, that clip is also on my website at thenatureofexistence.com on the videos page if you want to see the debate. Yeah, it's, it's very it's fascinating and entertaining all at one. I think my favorite part of the movie is when uh, you and your buddy were up in the hippie town having some meals and just watching your buddy's face, especially when you walked into the little headband shop and your buddy's just <laughs> sitting there with this look on his face going, oh my God, I'm in a strangler. <laughs> that was yeah in Fairfax, California. We went into uh, the Spirit of the Goddess. Uh, uh, it was a store where, where this woman who's an artist sells head circlets which are these sort of crowns or headbands that women like to wear, and men. And uh, I interviewed her about that, and while we were doing the interview, she got a phone call, and somebody need needed one FedExed out immediately. Well, that, that's right. a very quick business. You can't allow it to wait. <laughs> no, if you need empowerment, you, you want it quick. 
I want my third eye. Bring it to me. <laughs> well, that just proves what's really important to these people, right? It's not helping people or explaining. It's money. It comes down to cash. Well, <laughs> well, well, if you're selling a product that makes people feel better, you will make some money. Yeah. What was up with the fat chick who had a beard? I think that was uh-huh. a guy. Was His name that was uh-huh. Yeah, he, uh, I believe he's a he. And uh, <laughs> he is he's a guru. And he, I guess, you know, maybe he'd fit into that category, much like the Native American spiritual uh, masters that tend to fall in, in somewhere in the middle of sexuality. To thank him for uh, for coming onto your show, did you send him a bra? He, <laughs> he could have used he, uh, one. He, 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 he uh, loves the movie and his portrayal in it and uh, uh, sent him a copy of the film, though. Was there a I, bra wrapped up in the copy? You know, I, I kind of I liked him. Uh, you know, he was he, entertaining. Of the gurus, if you listen and the- to what he says. You know, what what I like about Aha is you. Whenever someone doesn't look like what you expect them to look like, you have expectations, maybe lower expectations. And then when you listen to what he says, it's like, oh yeah, good point. You know, this woman asks him, "How do I find my purpose in life? I don't know where to start." And he oh, says, "Hey, I hate to be the one to tell you, but your purpose is that person right next to you. You know, what you're talking about when you say purpose is recognition." I thought that was a great point. People tend to equate fame with a purpose in life, and that's a very empty purpose and, and does not lead to happiness. He uh, he's probably my favorite of the guru and the, the god men that you uh, interviewed. Yeah, There's the one guy, I just didn't like him at all. He was just far too happy, and I wanted to duct tape him to a chair. He was bald? No, no, the bald guy, the uh, the one that was uh, sitting out on the chair. He had a bunch of people in front of him wearing, like, the wide, and he, he was too oh. much of a salesman for my taste. I got gotcha. you. He was like a self-help guru. I thought you were yeah. talking about the other Indian guy who uh, would just, he would say something and uh, laugh at himself the whole time. Yeah. And he was like thousands of people were uh, apparently paying money to go see this guy. To watch him check his email. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, who is a guru in India. Yeah, they they really do. They admit right up front what they are selling is happiness, or, or the way they put it, they they teach people to smile at themselves. Yeah. That's their, that's <laughs> was I the only one that was well, thinking I... of that movie, The Love Guru? While every time it would show that guy. Why would you have to pay for that? Why can't you just smile at yourself? Yeah. Well, you'd think, right? And so. All he really does, if you go see him, is he presents you with unconditional acceptance. He accepts people, he smiles at them, and even if it's only for 15 seconds per person, people are so starved for that kind of emotion from other people. And, and when they are that starved, they are so thrilled that someone will offer it. Well, I, you, you know, realize the reason they're starved is because of atheism. We put that in people's heads. You, you should put your the people you met at, at the Trekkies documentary, and then you should uh, fly them over to this guru, and then maybe, maybe they can get some self-actualization, or people will sit there and listen to them, and they'd feel better about themselves. Or, if they if he locks the Trekkies in the room with this guru, the guru's going to slit his throat after ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you ever follow up on any of those Trekkie people, the, the lieutenant... Barbara Adams, the commander. Yeah, the commander. Yeah, do you ever I touch bases well, with these guys? Yeah, again? well, I, 
I did a Trekkies 2, a sequel, where I did go back seven years later to follow up on her, oh for instance, God, and some of the like others. It? So, yeah, if you want to see what they were doing, you know, seven years later, Trekkies 2. And, uh, and, I, and it also uh, went international. I get to found Star <laughs> Trek fans that. around the world. Yeah, that's, that's that. on the top of the renting list now. Leighton, uh, what did you think about the masturbation section of the movie? I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, actually, that was uh, that was one of my favorite parts. I really didn't expect Shocked. you to uh, to talk about masturbation. Uh, it, it was mind-bogglingly funny to watch these people squirm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't expect me to ask that question, and so that's why I love asking it. And I would slip it in, you know, two-thirds of the way into the interview usually. I wouldn't open with it, but um, what's why not? Why, I don't. I've always wondered. Why people are so uptight about t- talking about sex? Well, if What's you don't know your deal? own body, how are you going to teach somebody else it? Yeah, you know, it's not the same in every country. I think the United States is especially repressed compared to many other countries around the world, and I guess it has something to do with the fact that it, the country was founded by Puritans, and we're still suffering from from that. You from know, two hundred years later. No, I think my favorite. My favorite response to that question uh, was the uh, religious fella that said that masturbation is wrong because within the semen is life, and so basically you are ejecting life out into the nether. And my first thought is, so what happens when you have a wet dream? Is that just God's way of saying, eh, I don't like that life in there, let's get rid of it till we can find good life? Yeah, that was the Jainist, and Jainists are the kind of extreme example of anti-violence. They don't, they will not kill anything if they can help it, because they believe that it has to do with their karma. They want to improve their karma over time, and to improve your karma, you, you don't kill anything, because you damage your karma by harming other life. But, as you're pointing out, that logic makes no sense, because if you're going to say that you should not kill sperm... Well, sperm naturally dies whether you ejaculate it or not, mm-hmm. and as do all the cells in your body. So you can't keep all your cells alive forever. Well, see, my yeah. thought on ejaculation is by me shooting it out where it's in the air and, and the atmosphere, I am giving it a chance to evolve into something else. Is your sperm out in the atmosphere? <laughs> I, every chance I get, I shoot it up in the atmosphere. God. <laughs> oh. That might explain yeah. some of the uh, weather patterns we're having. <laughs> I would suggest an umbrella. I really would. I mean, literally, these do these people ever have sex? I mean, there's no difference between... The only difference between sex and masturbation is that you have a chance of one of those sperm out of probably a hundred million, I mean, if you have less than something like two or three million sperm in your ejaculate, you're essentially infertile. So that one sperm might fertilize an egg if the female happens to be ovulating at the right time, but you're still killing, you know, a hundred million minus one sperm. These people ever have sex? The thing is, those sperm would die on the same schedule anyway, if if you kept them in your body because they don't live more than, you know, they have a very short lifespan, regardless of where they are. There's no logic to to that, you know, well, obviously. Not only that, but these, uh, these guys would wear masks, so they wouldn't uh, kill even viruses and bacteria. So my <laughs> thought on that was, so those who are going through chemotherapy are wrong because they're killing that cancerous cell? Well, they're killing you can make that argument, too. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody's having sex. Everybody, the same. Everybody's having about the same amount of sex. It's just some people feel bad about it, 
and some don't. And if you feel bad about it, you're going to try to stop other people from doing it because you are trying is a, to yourself not to do it. The best example are, uh, you know, uh, Congress. You know, how often do we have a Republican congressman who suddenly busted for some homosexual activity or heterosexual activity after they've been condemning it vociferously? It's like they want to stop everybody else from doing that thing they want to do, but they're trying to stop within themselves. Sure, and the same goes for pastors. How many pastors have been busted for homosexual activity or cheating on their wife, et cetera, et cetera? You know, yeah, it's a very it would powerful be... urge. I mean, it, the, the harder you try yeah. to stop having sex, the more powerfully it's going to erupt in some way at some point. Yeah, it's 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 exactly why <laughs> Utah downloads more porn than any other state in America. Yeah, <laughs> it's because they repress it just so much that it explodes everyone every m once a month or something like that. And then suddenly you have all these people who feel bad about it exploding. Well, there's probably some rational rationalization for, you know, God's testing the Mormons specially. If they would just do it into a bottle, they could save themselves money instead of going down and getting air, hair conditioner. So, <laughs> is, that, is that good? Does it work? Uh, I'd have to ask my buddy. Uh, he said that it worked <laughs> amazingly well in his hair, and I'm pretty sure that's all he did for hair conditioner for a very long time. <laughs> Leighton doesn't know because his aim's so bad, his all goes into the atmosphere. He exactly. can never get it into a bottle. But, <laughs> see, I'm trying to create a new life form. So Petri dishes, the atmosphere, I'm just shooting it everywhere. All right, what let's... is that called? Panspermia? Have you ever heard of that? that uh... <laughs> Goes to other planets. Yeah, yeah, that's Leighton's version of panspermia. Yeah, exactly. I am uh, attempting to just spread myself everywhere. All right, there is a list of questions that apparently you asked for these uh, interviews, and what do you say we turn these back on yourself? So I'm getting this from your website here. Right, I 85 questions. When, once I sat down and started writing all the questions I had, I had about 85, and I asked everybody that I interviewed, time allowing, all these same questions. Are we really going to go through 85 We're going to go through every single question. <laughs> this is like going through the 613 laws of Judaism. <laughs> yeah, you know how well that turned out. Yeah, well. well, if you pick your favorites and we don't get through all 85, they're all listed on the website if anybody wants to see them. And you can answer there, too. You can click on each one and answer it and see what yeah, other people Yeah, they they've got comments on all of them. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what What is religion? Well, for, for me, to, to qualify as a religion, I think it has to involve a supernatural entity. Because you can say, I, I, you know, I follow baseball religiously, and that's an accu accurate use of the word. But if there is no supernatural entity, to me it's not religion, it's something else. Would Buddhism qualify as a religion under that definition? Well, they are atheists... However, they do they have sort of a uh, an overlapping belief with the Hindus of karma, which would require supernatural some supernatural entity or quality to their life. Yeah, supernatural. I, I learned more in the 15 minutes of uh, your movie about Hinduism than Leighton's entire podcast on it. Well, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that uh, your Hanukkah was just rated worse than the Hindu. <laughs> Episode, so uh, I wouldn't flaunt that too highly. Is I should there say there's two, there's, there's two aspects to religion, though. The other aspect is, and which is what most people get out of religion, it's not the supernatural element. It's just a code for living. It's rules for living, how to live your life. With well, supernatural fairy tales kind of mixed in. As the Church right. of Satan liked to say, uh, what is the consequence of sin? Pleasure. 
That guy, <laughs> that guy had the best hair out of anyone in the whole movie. I was very impressed. <laughs> How and long eyebrows. did he spend on that? And eyebrows. <laughs> Is yeah, there I a god? <laughs> uh, are you asking me? Um, yes. I think I he's just randomly question. shooting out Tourette's at this point. <laughs> he's just randomly, we're, we're conversing, and he's just yelling out questions. Ask your I'm post, trying to get through post, all 85. Postman, yeah, you know, ask people in general every day, is there a God? I get that uh, question a lot, of, as you'd imagine, at screenings, and my response is always the same, and here's what it is. I always say that I can't even answer that question until you define for me what you mean by God. Because there's this misnomer when people say, oh, we believe in God, that they're talking about the same thing. But there's so many different definitions from the Hindus, you know, multiple gods, Ganesha, Vishnu, Brahman, whatever, to the God of the Old Testament with a white man, a white bearded man on a cloud, to Einstein's definition, which he borrowed from Spinoza, which is God equals the laws of the universe. And it's pretty easy to believe in that God. I believe in the laws of the universe. But the white bearded man on a cloud who's taking notes and how many times I masturbate so he can throw it in my face when I die seems kind of far-fetched. That's a little sadistic if he's going to throw it in your face afterwards. You know, well, you pearly gates and they here's the list of all your crimes. Oh, uh, you mean list. I thought you meant literally. Okay. <laughs> all the uh, – if they're collecting it, that, that would be disgusting. Well, it would certainly teach you not to do it in heaven. <laughs> Unless you Why? like that. Why is there suffering? There's the evolutionary aspect, which I think is the most grounded, that if species did not exist in a difficult environment, they would not improve. And suffering is a natural result of existing in an environment that was not designed for you. You are adapting to it, whatever that environment may be. So all you have to do is be, evolutionarily speaking, is create biological units that are a little bit better than the biological units you're competing with. So those they can still have flaws, like cancer, for instance, appearing after the age when you would have already reproduced. So suffering is a natural byproduct of evolution. But on a philosophical or spiritual sense, suffering is what gives us the counterpoint to joy or happiness. And it's like heaven. Imagine heaven where you're, you're joyful and blissful for eternity. Pretty soon it's going to have no meaning if it all emphasis is no emphasis. So you've got to have some some rough times to appreciate the good times. Well, it's very interesting that you state that because uh, you had some dude in there spitting out a bunch of psychobabble about how they've done studies and discovered that raising children and interacting with children is about as enjoyable as doing housework. And yet from that, they derive more uh, overall joy than those who live a life just for themselves. I've found that... Upon that, reflection, that, right, when they think about their chi- their children... Yeah, I got two kids. I'll let you know. I'll let you know when there's any happiness involved in that. Yeah, I'd I'd like to know (laughs) at least one instance of you looking back (laughs) on your children and being happy, Charlie, especially after they carve their names into the table with a knife like people. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's hard work, right, raising children? And and kind of your life is over. You live your life for them from that point forward. Uh, my favorite question, number 63, uh, why is Orson Scott Card such a massive dick? <laughs> I'm impressed. Did you ask that to Richard Dawkins? I'm sure Dawkins had an answer just right off the top of his head. Anybody, I think, who is very sure of themselves, if you don't agree with their point of view, 
they're dicks. And if you do agree with their point of view, they're your hero. You know, it's like Dawkins. He's very sure of himself. The little girl across the street who's 12 years old, she was very sure of herself. And I thought she was fantastic. Some people are really put off by her because they don't like the fact that a 12-year-old is certain there's no heaven. Well, see, Charlie brought up a very interesting point because uh, we spoke about that little girl because I, I found her just massively entertaining. But Charlie brought up the point that uh, she has been indoctrinated so deeply just as much as a religious child. Yeah, um, when I was listening to that girl, she reminded me of nothing so, so much as uh, the kids in Jesus camp who were going through and you know they were so certain that God existed and everything like that. Um, I, I would love it, and it may be that she's deeply um, uh, contemplated all this stuff and come up with all this stuff on her own, but I have a sneaking suspicion that she's regurgitating a lot of what her parents are telling her. Well, I asked her after the interview, how is it you're so well-spoken for a 12-year-old? And she said, well, I want to be president someday, so I read a lot of books. Oh, well, so good what's for really her. her it's, it's that intellectual curiosity. She has sought out and read a lot of books and, and information about these topics. And so the idea is, of course, all of us, we absorb ideas from the culture around us if we seek it out, if we're curious, if, if, if we ask questions. And if you don't ask questions, if you stop with a simple answer, you get uh, intellectually retarded, really. You, you, your brain gets uh, – it, it atrophies. If you don't challenge it, and if you don't think, you don't ask questions, and she's the kind of person who asks questions. Well, that explains Leighton. What? I'm just a Neanderthal. I can't go yeah. much higher. <laughs> Intellectually stunted. Uh, but that's not the only thing stunted, but let's move on. <laughs> so, uh, well, that's fantastic, um, because she did remind me quite a bit of those kids uh, who were indoctrinated in Jesus camp. So that's... It's good to know that uh, that's coming forth naturally from her curiosity and, and her reading. That's, well, that shoots her back up to the top of my favorite people of the movie. Yeah, I think knowing that, I think that, yeah, she is. She's um, She certainly was very articulate, uh, and she was very confident in her ideas. <laughs> well, isn't that I the point, what, though? You know, a yeah. point of living, point of being here, I think. And it's like one conclusion I draw at the end of the movie that the whole point of being here is to keep journeying and learning and asking questions until the end. Well, not if you're religious. You're just speaking out of hand. If you're religious, it's to accept what has been brought before you without you're, question. You're still asking questions. You're just asking a different type of questions, and you're kind of uh, stunted in the scope of what well, you're willing to ask. You've hedged in exactly what you're going to look at for the answer, though. Yeah, you've got sacred cows you're not willing to challenge, well, definitely. So if you have the answer with a capital A, new information is threatening. And so you have to spend the rest of your life, as long as you're protecting that big answer, from all that new information. And it's a lot of work. It's hard work, and, and it's, it's uh, to, to continually have to defend whatever it is you believe. But you know, if your answer was so strong, why does it need so much defense? Why couldn't you know the best answer should be able to stand up on its own? Yeah, I mean, like, like stoning cows. I mean, that answer is just apparent to everybody. It's obvious, <laughs> right? If that cow's raped, he clearly didn't. Uh, she clearly didn't fight back hard enough and should be stoned. She's kind of complicit in getting raped. Yeah, uh, she enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Old Testament. All right, any uh. Closing thoughts? Well, uh, here's my shameless plug. I made a movie called The Nature of Existence, and uh, I'd love everybody to see it. But you know, the reason, uh, all kidding aside, I made the film is because 
I was curious about why people believe what they believe. Why do religious people fly airplanes into buildings? Why, you know, does my uh, I've got a cousin who's a fanatic Christian, and he will talk to you as long as you'll listen about Jesus, and um, and he's really smart, you know, and and I I can't quite understand why I'm thinking as you know he's arguing. Does he accept that without? More logical, critical thought, and you know whomever the people you meet in your life that you, when you get that feeling like why aren't they thinking critically? I set out to try to find out and ask people these questions. I asked believers, I asked religious, non-religious, atheists, scientists, Native Americans, Satanists, whomever. I gather the, them all together in this movie and ask them all the same questions about why we're here, what's the point of everything, is there an afterlife, where is it located, if there is. How does the soul work? How do you transfer thoughts from your brain into a soul? What's the mechanism of transfer, etc.? You know, it's like this infinite existential onion. The more you, every time you peel a layer, there's another question underneath it, which to me is exciting. It's fascinating. I can't wait to get to the next question. But some people, they don't want questions, and I wanted to try to understand that. That's why I made this film. Did you come to any ultimate answers? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I learned from Brother Jed. I learned from everybody. Everybody can teach you something. But when people ask me, you know, what's the answer after seeing the movie, I have to tell them that, you know what, nobody can give you a purpose in life. You have to arrive there yourself. But the clues are all there in the film. The answer is there. You have to find it. And the way to find it is – I'll put it this way, and this works for whether you're religious or or non-religious. I think we can all agree that the universe is here. We're here. We exist. It was created somehow, and if you put the – whether it's a button pusher or whether it's a natural property of matter for the universe to exist, put that question aside. The fact that it is here, creation and destruction are the two main vibes of the universe, and if you align yourself, your life, with creation, you will be a happier person. If you align yourself with destruction, you will be unhappy. You see people who are not creating, they tend to be depressed. So what do you create? Well, whatever you have a passion for, you know, write a poem, you know, create a podcast, plant a garden, uh, make a new dance, make a movie like I did, write a story. You know, if you're an architect, you build a house. It doesn't matter as long as you are creating something. And, and the litmus test for whether it's a positive creation is whether it benefits society in some way, your creation, as opposed to harming it in some way, because we are social creatures and we exist in a society, and our happiness is tied up in how our society and our social group responds to us. And they respond to us when, in positive ways when we act in ways that are positive for the group. So you cannot pursue happiness. It's one thing Julia Sweeney said in the movie. I liked that very much, that she said, happiness is a false goal. It's a byproduct of having a purpose in life. So the real question is, what is my purpose in life? And how do you find it? Create whatever it is. Find that passion with you. And even if it's a little bit every day, you know, if you if you I understand if you have a job that you hate and you know you you want to stop doing that, but the ideal life is to do for your job or whenever you can squeeze it in that thing you're passionate about that creates something that's a positive attribute for society. That's a probably a good place to leave. Uh, except I do have one more question, one final ultimate Probing question. Charlie, you with one more question? Uh, that's unfathomable. And that is <laughs> Will there be a Trekkies 3? Yeah. I was just brainstorming with Denise Crosby about that a couple <laughs> weeks ago. So we are kicking some ideas around. 
I, I, I'd say it's very possible. Well, and it makes sense because there's a whole new group of Star Trek fans that have been indoctrinated thanks to the, the new movie and the next new movie that's coming out. So, uh, uh, yeah, probably. Excellent, excellent. And uh, Layton's a huge Star Trek fan. He knows who Dennis uh, Crosby is, right, Layton? God damn it. I knew you were going to ask something <laughs> about Star Trek. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tasha Yar. Was um... – Ooh, wait, you probably Yar. don't even know who Tasha Yar is. Yar, um, blonde girl? Ah, good, very good. Okay, see, I, I've heard that name before, but she wore tight outfits, so... You see what you see? What I have to put up with, Roger? Is what I have to I've up. seen, yeah. Well, I'm just trying to figure out why you would ask him about Star Trek Three. That's a superfluous uh, question, because we haven't even watched Star Trek, or Trekkies 2, to see yeah, if we, we like it. Yeah, we gotta rent that. I Definitely. mean, if we don't like it, why would we go on to 3? Right, and if you got any uh, uh, ideas, send them to me for 3. <laughs> well, uh, I think you should interview Charlie. Um, would you like to bring up the fact that you have the entire Star Trek II Wrath of Khan memorized where you can whip open, <laughs> say one sentence, and he will say the sentence before and after that sentence? That would be very telling. Is that true? Uh, it used to be. I don't know if I can still do it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, put you to the test. Like, like I said, um, every time I feel like I'm a big nerd, I pop in that Trekkies and feel better about myself. Well, and that's I, because I've, you've got a community to go to now. I've not constructed a... A, a spaceship uh, in your kitchen? <laughs> or what was that little Christopher Pike mobile that he had where he's just <laughs> tooling down the street with that little <laughs> right light that... Uh, lights up for yes and no, and then his head's poking out. I thought that was fantastic. Well, let me ask you this, Roger. Is this very telling about Charlie's personality? He has the entire Wrath of Khan memorized, and yet I cannot convince him to go to a Trekkies convention with me. That's a well, line. Then he's in denial. You're living in denial. <laughs> Thank <laughs> that you. That's a line I will not cross. <laughs> I've but, drawn you know, that line in the sand. Like, embrace yourself. Whatever you are, embrace it. Thank you. Go with it. I've been trying to get him out of the closet so we can go pee with Klingons, uh, and he just refuses to come. <laughs> I think you'd, uh, you'd you'd probably find your reaction much different from what you'd expect if you went to a convention. Well, I might have to go. Maybe we'll make a podcast out of it, Layden. Uh, I, I like this idea. but then... Don't expect to get laid, though. <laughs> you kidding? Me and him walking in would be like gods among men. And although <laughs> yeah, the... But... The pick of the it's litter wouldn't be good, but it's all men. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's at least one little fatty in there that uh, everybody's after. Oh my god! <laughs> oh lord! All right, let's wrap it up on that one then. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, Roger, and uh, let us know Anytime. future projects. Uh, we'd love to have you on. Yeah, now that I know who you are, I actually like you. So. Uh, yeah, well, check out my work, and I'd love to come back. Yeah, I'm working on the next documentary now. I'm taking on a new topic that's even more challenging, I think, than existence itself, which is the, the nature of marriage. Oh, yeah, Ooh, good luck with that. That ought to be right. interesting. Exactly, even more inexplicable. All right, let me know what you come up with on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again. You take care. Yeah, thanks right. for coming on. All right, bye-bye. Thank you.